Today we begin a new series called Look Up. And this is about worshiping in all we do. And my hope over this next four weeks is that we would have great reminders of what it means to worship God, maybe new revelations of what it means to worship God, and that we truly participate in worshiping God in even more full ways. For a long time, uh, I lived in Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin. And if you know a little bit about Wisconsin winters, winters in Wisconsin have a, lot, a few things, cold, snow, and ice. And I would take groups up to this camp during the winter time, uh, to this camp called Fort Wilderness, where we do these winter retreats. And it was a great time to get away into the North Woods and do tubing and ice skating. And uh, also, it was an opportunity, if you ask me, have I ever walked on water? Yes, many times. It was just frozen. So, uh, yes, if you put me on a pedestal, I have walked on water. Uh, Some of you other Northerners have too. But uh, after dinner on some nights, depending the time of year or the, the time of the moon phase, if no moon was out and the sky was clear, we would bundle up and go down to the frozen lake and walk out onto this lake. And we'd simply lay down on the lake and look up into the heavens. And as you laid there and your eyes adjusted, it was like a whole new world came into focus. The millions and millions of stars that you could see with no light pollution and without the moon being out was incredible. You could see literally galaxies like the Milky Way. You could see it. You could see satellites circling the earth just with your naked eye. You could see planets. And as you laid there on the ice and as I laid there, I was reminded of a few things. One was the immensity of who God is. That we cannot even comprehend how big and amazing a God we worship who has spoken all of the universe into existence. I can't even wrap my mind around that. Another thing that I've become aware of is how small I was laying on this little piece of frozen real estate in the north woods of Wisconsin compared to the immensity of who God is. And then connecting those two together that there's this God who is so vast and immense that he knows every star by name. And he holds the earth in the palm of his hand. That this God looks at each one of us and says, I know your name. I know your thoughts. I know every hair on your head. I know you intimately. All it did in me was create the sense of worship. The sense of wanting to just pour my heart out and my life out before God in worship. And it's so easy in our lives to focus horizontally. And sometimes it almost takes God laying us flat on our back to have us look up and see that life is something more than what is just here and now. And as we look up and as we begin to worship God, I believe we begin to encounter what we're really created for. That we aren't simply created for the horizontal existence that so much of our life is focused on, but we are created for this vertical experience of worship of the living God. For many of us, we are familiar 
with Jesus. We're familiar with the stories of Jesus all throughout Scripture. And for some of us, we're maybe more new to that and haven't studied a lot of this. And for any of us, I believe we need to go back to those stories of Jesus and back to who Jesus is and understand who God looks like, but that we are ultimately created for worship. And he's looking for people to focus beyond the horizontal, beyond the here and now, and look up and discover what we are created for. In one encounter with a woman, Jesus gives this great picture of what worship is really all about. And if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 4. Uh, we have notes in the seat backs. We're also on the Version app. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible from the Welcome Center as a gift to you that you can take with you. And when you come back, you can bring it with you however you'd like. But today we're going to be in John chapter 4. If you're wondering where that is, on a Bible timeline, this is in the section called the Gospels. And the Gospels, that word means good news. And so these are four books of the Bible about the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the Gospel of John, that is the fourth Gospel, we arrive at the story. In Jesus' life, he's around 30 years old right here. He's just stepped out of obscurity into ministry. He was baptized, tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, performed his first miracle. His reputation is growing. And so Jesus, this name for Jesus, and that he's this incredible teacher, is growing. And in our modern day society, when you start making a name for yourself, what do you want to do? You want to ride that. You want to take that farther. You want to build on that. But Jesus does exactly the opposite. He steps away from this growing momentum. And we begin in verses, uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing, making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. So this name is growing in the city of Jerusalem, but instead of staying around, he leaves and heads back to Galilee. To give you a little bit of picture of where that is, you can see the word Judea at the bottom there. Right above the word Judea is the word Jerusalem. So there's Jerusalem. Then you have Samaria in the middle, and you can see right above the word Samaria, the uh, word Sikar. That's a city in there that he makes a pit stop on the way to Galilee. You can see the Sea of Galilee in the north. And so Jesus is heading from south to north. And it's about 40 miles from Jerusalem up to Sychar. That's a nice walk. It's much longer than a marathon. So for all of you who think that that was impressive, Jesus was doing these walks all the time. Maybe he wasn't running them. But anyways, so here Jesus is heading to the north. Let's continue to read. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at noontime. Jesus arrives in this village around noontime and Jacob's well is right there. If you remember who Jacob is or if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Jacob was renamed Israel and Israel had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this has a lot of historical significance happening here. This is a well that the patriarchs of Israel would have drawn buckets full of water from to provide for their existence and life. Now also recognize here that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. 
Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews. They were a mix of Jewish and Assyrian blood from hundreds of years before. And the Jews, or the Jews would not allow the Samaritans to worship in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. So we will see a little bit later that the Samaritans set up a place for worship right outside of Sychar. So verse 7 and 8. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. You know why. So here it is, noon. Noon is not the normal time that a woman would come out and draw water from the well. It'd either be in the cool of the morning or the cool of the afternoon where people would gather and cattle would gather and livestock that they would avoid the heat of the day coming to this well. But for some reason, this woman arrives at the well in the middle of the day and she encounters Jesus. And the woman's really surprised that Jesus would have anything at all to do with her. And there's many reasons why. One, here Jesus is alone. She's a woman and a Samaritan. And so culturally speaking, there should have been no interaction there. And they should have just went along their ways and pretended that neither really existed. But instead, Jesus enters in. He crosses these cultural and social boundaries and says, I am going to ask this woman simply for a drink of water. And here's her response. Verses 9 and 10. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God had for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Right away, the woman questions Jesus' motives. What are you doing? Why are you asking me for this? You know who you are. You know who I am. There should not be any interaction going on here. But then Jesus begins to unpack this a little bit and he says, if you knew the gift of God, That term gift of God there was used by the Jews actually as a reference to the five first books in the Old Testament, the Torah, the books of Moses. And Jesus potentially could be saying here that if you understood the five first books of the Bible, and then he continues, if you knew who I was, so potentially Jesus is saying, if you really understood the scripture, You'd be understanding who I am and this living water that I'm offering to you. Now, what is this living water that he's offering to her? Living water, that term at the time was used for rivers. Rivers are alive and full of life. It was also used of underground springs. So it was water that was moving, not just stale and stagnant water. But also in the whole Old Testament of the Bible, again and again, there's these references towards living water and a connection with God being the source of living water. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13 is one of these references. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. 
So what is this living water that Jesus is talking about? I don't believe he's talking about a river. I don't believe he's talking about that physical well. He is talking about himself. And that living water is finding life in Jesus. Finding the life that has been promised from the first five books of the Bible, all the way through the Old Testament, into the New Testament. Now Jesus is saying, I am that source of living water. But this woman is so focused horizontally. So this is her response to this offer of living water, verses 11 and 12. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? This woman is focused horizontally and she's focused on the past. Horizontally, she says, Jesus, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. You have no possible way to get this water out of this well. And besides that, are you saying that you are better than my history? You're better than my past? We've come to this well for centuries. This is Jacob's well. We know what kind of water comes from this well. And you're trying to tell me that you can give me something better than my history? Better than my past? Better than my culture? Better than what I've experienced? And how often do we just sit here and focus horizontally? We get so wrapped up in the things and all we hear is physical and temporary and present or even our own history. And then when an offer comes along from Jesus, we go, really? You think you have something better for me? You don't even have the right tools to give me what I think you're offering. And the woman is stuck on this horizontal focus. A focus that says life is all about the tangible. Life is all about the physical. And she's unable to look beyond and see that she is created for more. So what does Jesus do? Does he get frustrated? Does he say, you just don't get it? No, he continues to push and prod and try to get her to understand. And he says to her, Anyone who drinks this water, oh, sorry, and when we, when we focus horizontally, we miss life in Jesus. If all we have in our whole existence is this horizontal focus, we miss that Jesus offers us this incredible life that we need to focus ver- vertically to understand. So then Jesus continues and says to this woman, anyone who drinks this water, speaking of the physical well, will become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. That when you come to Jesus, the well of life, that the well that Jesus offers you satisfies an eternal thirst that nothing here can fill or satisfy. Everything you do, Everything you gather, everything you possess, everything you accomplish here is temporary. You can have the most incredible meal and you're going to be hungry again. You can have the most incredible drink and you're going to be thirsty again. You can have 
the biggest house and one day it will crumble and fall apart or the coolest car and it's going to fall apart. And Jesus is saying there's something beyond. Something beyond the horizontal that if you look up, if you look beyond, you are going to encounter a thirst that can only be satisfied in Jesus. And this thirst, this quenching that Jesus promises is not something that comes from the outside, but Jesus says it's going to bubble up from the inside of you. It's going to come up from the inside and flow out from you. Jesus is the only one who can really satisfy this eternal thirst in each and every one of us. So by this time, you'd think this woman would get it. But we read in verse 15 this. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come to get water from this well. She's still focused horizontally. And now you begin to see something else that she doesn't want to come to this well. She would rather not be at this well. And she's thinking that, boy, if I had this living water and I never had to show up at this physical well again, I would be real, real happy. And why do you think this is? Well, Jesus tells her. He says to her, go and get your husband. Jesus told her, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Even in our modern day society, somebody who has had five husbands seems like a little bit of a lot. So there's three different things that I could think of, of the reason why this woman had five husbands. One, she's been widowed five times. It doesn't tell us. She could have lost all five of these husbands. Another one is she could have divorced all five of these husbands. Or there could have been a combination of death and divorce. But the reality is she is now on her sixth. She's not married to them. And according to even that tradition of that time, rabbis would allow you to be married three times and then that was a cutoff. But also no rabbi or religious leader of that time would have been okay with cohabitation. So this woman would have had a level of shame, of guilt, whatever. Even if all five husbands had died, people would talk in the village of Sikar. Like, what's up with this woman? She's lost five husbands. But there'd be conversation. There'd be talk going on. And so all of a sudden, Jesus brings out what's happening in her life. Does he condemn her? Does he judge her? No, he simply says, I know you. I know what's going on in your life. And he just lets it sit there. And how does this woman respond? She says, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me why. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. Now we're getting into more of the spiritual climate of what's happening. And this woman begins to ask a question about worship. Jews say worship here. The Samaritans worship here. Both of these are significant things in history for the Jewish people. Jerusalem is where the temple is. The temple that was erected by Solomon, where the glory of God descended. And the manifest presence of God was in that temple. But that temple was destroyed and rebuilt. And at this time, there was a temple that had been rebuilt by Herod. That worship was still happening in Jerusalem. But then Mount Gerizim 
is where Abraham built the first altar in worship to God, right outside of Mount Gerizim. When the Israelites left Egypt and were headed towards the promised land, God told them to stand up on the Mount of Gerizim, have a group of people proclaiming blessings over the nation as they're entering into the promised land. So Mount Gerizim had some incredible spiritual history. Jerusalem had some incredible spiritual history. And this woman is saying, which one's right? Where should we worship? Do we connect God more on the mountain or more in the temple? And Jesus responds and says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on the mountain, on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And in this simple statement, Jesus pulls back multiple things about worship. What it is and what it isn't. And so let's define it here. The word worship in the Greek simply means this. According to the Logos Bible software, to prostrate oneself in the presence of the divine or supernatural as a sign of humble submission. So that is worship. That when you are worshiping, you recognize there is God and I am not him. And I will humbly prostrate myself, get on my face in front of that God and recognize that I'm giving my life, giving my complete, utter existence to him. That is worship. And he says, Jesus continues, he says, when you worship, when you get into that position of humble submission, be it physical, spiritual, whatever, I think it includes all that. When you get into that position, how do we worship? Well, first, it's not about location. He's saying it's not about location. You might look and say, well, I worship God better in this location than that location. And Jesus is saying it's not about worship in a temple. It's not about worship on a mountain. It's not about worship in a field. It's not about worship in a desert. It's not about worship in a cathedral or in a very basic structure. It's about something more. And what it's about, it's about God. It's not about you. Unfortunately, we've turned worship into consumerism. That we look at worship and we say things like this. Well, how was worship this morning? And right away in our minds, we go to like, did I like the songs? Didn't I like the song? Was the pastor okay? Wasn't he okay? You know, and we, we have this horizontal focus. And when we look at worship or we think music, Or we think, how was my need met in worship? Well, God does meet us in worship, but first it's about him and not about you. It's so easy to think that our preferences are what worship is about. But it isn't. It's about something more. And it's not centered horizontally, but vertically in him. And also, worship is a spiritual act between God and people. 
Jesus said those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. That word spirit there is basically pulling back this level and saying, if you want to connect with God who is a spirit, you need to have a spiritual connection with this God. God is spirit. He is not just physical. The God we worship is not made of wood, clay, stone. This God we worship is a spiritual living being. And yes, Jesus is God in flesh, but he is both flesh and spirit. And Jesus says, whoever wants to come and worship God needs to have this spiritual connection with God. So how do we get that spiritual connection with God? Well, scripture tells us that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that connects us with God. He is called the truth in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus says those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth, he is saying you need to have the spiritual connection with God through the truth of who Jesus is as revealed in God's word. That we cannot come and worship God disconnected with Jesus. If he is the way, if he is the truth, if he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, we cannot truly worship unless we worship through Jesus and in his spiritual realm. God is spirit. And those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. We are created for more. We are created for more, but so often we get horizontally focused here. I remember hearing about a little girl when she was about four years old was given a plastic pearl necklace. And this necklace was her treasured possession. She loved that necklace. She wore it all the time. To her, it was like the real thing. Everywhere you saw this little girl, she'd be wearing this plastic pearl necklace. And as she grew older, she kept holding on to that. And one day her father came to her and said, Honey, will you give me that pearl necklace? She said, Dad, you you know how much I love this necklace. You know this is my treasured possession. And he said, Okay, you can keep it. And he went away, and weeks later, he came back and said to his daughter, Honey, can you give me that necklace? She's like, Daddy, you know how much I love this. You know how much I love this necklace. And anything else, you can have my teddy bear. You can have these other things. You can have my dolls, but not the necklace. Not the necklace. And so her dad kept coming back. And one day, he didn't even go to his daughter. The daughter came to him and said, Daddy, I love you more than this necklace. And so I will give you to you. And with tears in her eyes, she handed over this plastic pearl necklace. And the dad walked over to his shelf and took a little box and opened it up and said, this is for you. And he gave her a real pearl necklace that she had finally decided to give up the fake for the real. So often in our lives, we are focused horizontally. 
And we think this is what is real. This is what life is really all about. But in reality, it's only plastic. And Jesus calls us to come to him. That we can experience true life in him. And the offer of life is not a plastic fake existence. It is a life of abundance. A life overflowing. It is a life that lasts eternally. And so I ask you, just a few things as we finish here. What are the wells that you are worshiping at? What are the wells that you go to that you say, this is where I find life? Because all of us are worshiping at wells and we're trying to draw water from these wells and saying, man, if I only had this, then I would have life and full life. But Jesus calls us to come to him, that spring of living water to find real life. And next, have you ever said yes to Jesus, that source for living water? I believe there's that first yes we say, but then there's the ongoing yeses. I love this little uh, video we showed the other week of Naomi, um, Naomi Muster, who was baptized. And the question was asked, have you said yes to Jesus? And she said, yes, I've said yes. And when did you do that? Well, I did it the first time I went to church. And then I do it on Monday, and I do it on Tuesday, and I do it on Wednesday, and I do it on Thursday. And I, some, I, Sometimes I don't do it on Saturdays. But saying yes to Jesus is a first yes, but then again and again and again. That we just don't say yes once, we say yes again and say, yes, I'm going to go to the source of living water again. I'm not going to go back to those other wells. And then finally, are you worshiping God in spirit and in truth as only found in relationship with Jesus? That devoid of Jesus, Scripture tells us there is no true worship that happens. That we need to connect with God through Jesus. We are created for more. We are created for more than this horizontal existence that so much of life can get focused on. And if we simply look up and connect with Jesus, I believe our lives will overflow with that living water. Let's pray. God, you are a great and generous God who meets with us And you are the source of life. And Father, forgive us when we often go to other things that are not that source of life. Forgive us for when we drink deeply from wells that we think will satisfy, but never truly will. And God, may you turn us back or turn us into worshipers of the living God. That it's not about location. It's not about consumerism but it's about you, God. It's about worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Worshiping you in the beauty of who you are through the incredible atonement and gift that Jesus has given us. It's about knowing that in Jesus we can find real life and life abundantly. And Father, may we come back to that source of living water and may we forsake those wells 
that only rob us of true life. Jesus, we need you this morning. We come to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.